0: Colossians chapter 3, the sermon text will actually be verse 15, but uh, let's read 15 through 17, get sort of some of the context. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another, in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Glorious Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, We ask that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know you better. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and that we might also know your incomparably great power for us who believe. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. It was while we were engaged that we got the fantastic news that my wife, Amy, had an autoimmune disease, Graves' disease, a disease of the thyroid, in which her, her thyroid became hyperthyroid. And at first, the doctor was just like, oh, you're, you're a nervous bride. didn't really believe that something was going on, that there was something a little more profound behind the racing heart I know I'm good, but I ain't that good, right? (laughs) Actually, I'm not good at all. (laughs) You know, the racing heart and the the sensitivity to, to heat, all of these things. There was more going on, and so finally a test was done, and it was revealed that she had Graves' disease. What's interesting about an autoimmune disease is that what happens is not that... You've got a virus or a bacteria, something from the outside that is attacking your body. What's interesting about autoimmune is that your own body is attacking itself. It's, a, it's as if your body is at war with itself, and Amy's body was essentially at war with her thyroid. There's no cure for most autoimmune diseases. Essentially what it is is symptom management. How best to keep this from destroying the entire body. Sometimes the Church of Christ gets autoimmune diseases. It begins to be at war with itself. That's what was happening in the church in Colossae. They were starting to become at war with one another. And remember, Paul didn't know these people. He knew Epaphras, who had planted the church. And Epaphras had come and, and presumably had perhaps told Paul about some of the challenges that were going on and that there were some false teachers who had come and had begun to infiltrate the church and turn the people against one another with some bad doctrines. And that was that is what Paul is bringing to the forefront throughout this whole letter. is how it is Christ who is supreme. It is Christ who is sufficient. And in this particular section that we've been studying for the last few months, we've looked at the the vices that tend to rip the body of Christ apart, as well as the virtues that tend to bring it together. And in this section that we've begun today, which will continue when I get back from vacation, uh, we're going to look at three things that are part of how it brings us together, and those would be the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, the name of Christ. The big idea this morning is that the peace of Christ is sufficient to produce unity. We're going to look at this in three ways. And the first of these three ways is that the peace of Christ kills conflict. Conflict is always a threat to the holy community. Sometimes the, the, the conflict is about doctrine. There are churches that divide over the issue of the five points of Calvinism and Arminianism. There are churches that divide over the issue of baptism. There are churches that have divided over the issues of eschatology. There's all kinds of different doctrinal issues that can split churches. And sometimes that needs to happen for there to be health, but oftentimes it's just people arguing instead of listening to Scripture. Sometimes those conflicts come about because of people are trying to force their preferences upon other people. We all know about the worship wars, and that's what it largely is about. There's just very little about the worship wars that, that has to do with actually the regulative principle. It's mostly about preference. We, someone likes hymns, someone else likes more contemporary songs, and they just kind of go at each other and it gets ugly and churches split. And it's, it's not the way it's supposed to be. There can also be divides over sin. When there's a sinful practice that infiltrates a church, when the leaders of the church do not address it properly, there can be conflict and destruction. As I mentioned, Paul introduces these three things for the well-being of the body, his peace, his name, and his word, and we're going to look at the first of those today, the peace of Christ Sometimes when people uh, read this passage about the peace of Christ ruling in their hearts, they tend to take it in a more subjective sort of way. They tend to think about the need to be at peace with the decision. And and certainly there's nothing wrong with being at peace with the decision. But I don't think that that's what Paul is really intending here. Because if we look at this letter and how Paul has used this word peace in this letter, we find something very different. Perhaps, see, in Colossians 1, verse 20, And through him, meaning Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, either on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so, I cannot help but believe that Paul has the same understanding of peace here in chapter 3 that he had in chapter 1. That is the peace of of Christ that Paul wants to bring to bear upon the conflict, the tensions that exist within that church in Colossae and which can exist in any church. This is an objective peace. This is pointing to the, the ultimate shalom that we are to experience the wholeness of, of, of God and creation that is, that was intended initially, which was broken by, by sin, and which God is restoring through His Son, Jesus Christ. So that's the idea. This, this restoration of wholeness, but a wholeness that comes precisely because of the death of Christ upon the cross to bring peace between God and creation, because they have been at odds with one another because the creation has rebelled against the Creator. And so, even here, Paul wants them to remember that we have peace with God by the blood of Christ's cross. In other words, our sins are forgiven. And there are times when we struggle with this. There are times when I struggle with this. Yesterday, my wife and I got an email from someone who used to be a a congregant of ours in Florida, and asked, do you know this man? I'm like, huh? We checked the link, and what it was was a news report about an arrest that had been made, and we knew the man. And I've known the man for over a decade, and the crime that he is accused of committing is quite serious. But it's more than just a crime. It is a grievous sin against God if he has done this or tried to do this. And I'm sure that he probably now is, is you know on the, the this side of the arrest, if he's really guilty, if there's an objective guilt that's here, that he's wondering, can God forgive me? Because I have wanted to do something so horrible. Can God forgive me? And, and Paul, through the gospel, says, yes. possible because of Christ's blood upon the cross, not because of your promises to do better next time, not because of anything but Christ and Him crucified. But this man did not only commit a crime and a sin against God, he also sinned against his family. He also sinned against his church as he was a ruling elder in this church. And these people are all devastated because how sin destroys communities. And so they need to know not only is the cross of Christ sufficient for his sin in terms of his relationship with God, but they also need to know that it is sufficient to restore the peace within the body of Christ. And Paul says that too. In Ephesians chapter two, that great conflict that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles, even within the church, they still weren't getting along. And Paul says, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And so wherever hostility exists between Christians what Paul is saying is death uh, Christ in his death is sufficient to remove those walls of hostility. In other words, the conflict whatever it might be his death is sufficient to do this. Because Christ is supreme That's why Paul in Romans 12 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you. He recognizes that the other person may not want peace, but as much as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. We have the resources we need to do that in Christ, crucified, given to us by the Holy Spirit. Now, he says that this this peace of Christ must be. Rule in our hearts. Now, if you look, if you have an ESV, it's going to say, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. I don't know exactly why they picked that translation. Probably because it, in some ways, it makes more sense. But peace is the subject. And so it's the peace that must rule. It's an active thing. And so it's not so much about what we do, it's more about what God has done. But what he's telling them is is that the peace of Christ must rule within the body of Christ. In other words, peace should control how we interact with each other, how we handle conflict, That inevitably will happen because the church, in addition to being a holy community, is also still a sinful community. And so sin will arise. False doctrine might arise. Preferences will make themselves known. All of these things are going to happen. And what Paul says is that the peace of Christ must rule over these things. The word rule there has that idea of a judge, particularly in an athletic contest. And so in a sense, the peace of Christ, which the peace which Christ has won for us, the peace which which Christ is the source, that is to be the umpire or the referee, so to speak, within any conflict. Now, we all know that referees and umpires don't always get it right. In fact, this morning I I was up earlier than usual and I put on the TV and outside the lines was on and they were having a a lengthy discussion of the problem of parents um, in in kids sports, parents getting out of control and intimidating referees and officials and they mentioned the the death of a recent uh, uh, referee in a soccer game. But this ump, this referee won't blow it. Okay. This one will get the call right every time. Precisely because this one calls both sides to repent of their sinfulness to the degree that that has affected that particular conflict or discussion. Dick Lucas has said that when Christ rules in the heart, His peace will rule in the fellowship. What happens so often is that our hurt feelings, our anger, perhaps, our fears, begin to govern or rule or control the conflict or the discussion, and everything becomes incredibly unhelpful. We need the peace of Christ To remind us that those things that we seek are not ultimate things. And that we're to begin to to make our decisions and carry out our discussions so that what is done maintains the peace that Christ has purchased. And so the biggest issues that we face have been resolved in the death of Jesus. Earlier today, I think my wife mentioned, You okay? I said, Not really. Father's Day is sort of an odd day for me. And part of that is because in spite of the many good things my father gave to me, there were some very bad things my father gave to me. And there are times when I've really struggled on account of those bad things. And I remember before we got married, it was not going well. I was very angry with my father, precisely because he couldn't just say, you know, I blew it. You have a point. I agree. I'm sorry. He couldn't say that, and that's probably just you know a generational kind of thing, I don't know. But I was increasingly angry and increasingly distant from my parents, and I'm grateful for someone who finally said to me, "Enough already. When are you, when are you going to stop asking for your pound of flesh? When are you going to let him off the hook? And the reason I can and did. It's because of the peace that Christ has purchased. And so, if we keep wanting our pound of flesh, if we keep wanting, or keep wanting to keep somebody on the hook so that we can kind of feel better about ourselves and our own self righteousness, don't you love it how that heart works? Okay, you know? We destroy. And I was inadvertently destroying my relationship with my parents but I had to act as the peacemaker instead of demanding my pound of flesh. So the Spirit reminds us of the sufficiency of Christ's work in order to kill conflict. Secondly, the peace of Christ calls us to unity. You see, God has greater plans for us than not being at each other's throats. Isn't that great? You know, uh, I was a, I'm a Yankee. Not like New York Yankee. New England person. Okay? And, you know, there's culture shock when you move to the South. And I moved from New Hampshire to Florida. And what I always knew as the Civil War was not just the war between the saints, but was, as some of you may know, the War of Northern Aggression. (laughs) The country... from appearances would seem to be at peace. There's no civil war or war of northern aggression currently going on. And yet there's still sort of this animosity about what happened and what happened afterward. And there were lots of sins to go around. Don't worry. Everybody was guilty of something in that whole mess. You know, the, the South wasn't right and the North wasn't right. Everybody was wrong about something. Okay. God calls us for more than just sort of detente something much greater. Paul says, to which you were called. In other words, the peace of Christ is both the cause and a result of our calling. The Father welcomes us as his beloved children as a result of Christ's sufficient work. And so it's connected to the fact that God calls us to himself and to the church. That's all rooted in the death of Christ that brings peace. Without that, he's not calling us. He's keeping us away because we're unholy. Okay? And so the first part of that is is that his sufficient work enables us to come, for the Father to call us and for us to go. And we're called specifically, he says, in or into one body. We are called to unity. We're not called to be self-sufficient individual selves. We're not called to be, as what's called like the Lone Ranger Christian guy, which is very popular now. with, And I can understand this. As people get frustrated with the institutional church, okay, they kind of move away from organized church and now they're, they're trying to like, well, we don't need that. We don't need buildings and all of those things. Well, you know, the church is, is filled with sinners and of course there's people are going to hurt you and, and they're going to make bad decisions. And, yeah, I get that. But that's not enough to forsake the unity that we're supposed to exhibit in Christ. The unity for which Jesus prayed in his priestly high prayer in John 17. Make them one as we are one, is what Jesus said. And so there should be some measurable form of unity amongst the people who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. And that part of that takes place on Sunday morning. Or at least, it's supposed to. We have been called to be one, precisely as God is one diversity of persons and yet unity of purpose and action. That was tough for the Colossian Christians. Colossae was sort of a cosmopolitan city. There was a lot of trade that was going on. And so you had a, a big mix of people who had come into this city. Some of them, you know, very Hellenistic. And some of them, uh, you know, more kind of that Asia Minor background. Uh, some coming in because of the Roman influence taking place. And so you had a mixture of skin colors and, and um, languages and holidays to celebrate, whatever. Food. But not only that, but you had the problem here in Colossae, and because it's part of the Roman Empire, you have people who are free, people who are slave. You have people who are citizens of Rome and people who aren't, who are hoping maybe to become one one day if they get enough money. So you have all of these tensions at work, not just within the city of Colossae, but within the church of Colossae. Class warfare, ethnic pride, and hatred, perhaps, at work within that church. And that's part of what Paul also has, is addressing with this reality here. That we are called into one body. Not, you know, one Greek speaking body, one Hebrew speaking body, one Latin speaking body. One body. Tensions. And right now, we're, we're contemplating uh, the idea of, of taking two congregations that have two very different histories together into one. And that is always fraught with danger. Because each group is going to bring their baggage as well as their strengths, each group is going to bring their preferences as well as their convictions. And somehow, we all have to recognize the call to unity if that's going to happen. See, it doesn't have to happen if these two groups remain independent. We can kind of show up at each other's events and be nice to each other and and uh, pray for each other. But if we become one, it is going to be a manifestation of the peace to which Christ has created and to which he calls us to manifest in his church. The Spirit who unites us to Christ is the one who unites us together as the body of Christ. We see that particularly in what we read earlier in Ephesians chapter 4. By the Spirit maintaining the bond of peace. The Spirit holds us together. The Spirit works to to help us to submit our desires to the goals and needs of the many. I'm tempted to say what Spock said, that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. As he, yeah, you all got it. Um, well, except those of you who don't like science fiction. Anyway. And they, I know you exist in this congregation, but we love you nonetheless. Um, and so we're, we're called to continue in that peace which Christ has purchased in order to maintain the unity of the body. And so it's not just about how we get in, but it's also about how, in a sense, we stay in. What we do while we're in. Too often we can bring goals and agendas to the body which end up dividing it. Um, I I read a few years ago a book called um, Red and Me, bad grammar right there, but it's okay because it's Bill Russell. And if you know anything about Boston sports, you know the name, Bill Russell. He was the center of the Boston Celtics when they won the NBA championship 11 times in 13 years, utter dominance. Okay, And so he was talking about his friendship with Red and uh, the lessons he learned about leadership from Red Arback, who was the coach at the time, uh, except for the last year when Bill Russell was the player and the coach, and they won. But one of Red's things was every, everybody has a little red wagon. No, actually, sorry, it wasn't Red Arback. It was Bill Russell's dad. His dad told him that everybody has their agenda in a little red wagon. And whenever they show up, they've got their little red wagon with their agenda in it. And the key to leadership is to get them to use, not to forsake their agenda, but to use their agenda for the purposes of the greater goal of the team. And so that's what Bill Russell and Red Arbach would essentially try to do. Yeah, you, uh, you, we don't. You, we've, you've got your agenda. Let's see how this fits into the overall success of the team. And so it's okay to to have desires and, and interests, but you have to recognize that not everyone's going to have the same desire and interest. But you bring it together to recognize. Okay, how can this help the whole thing prosper? How can my desire see the church as a whole prosper, grow, and meet its needs? And so we're to bring these goals and agendas to help the body achieve its purposes. And so the peace of Christ is sufficient for the body, for the, ready, right, for the spirit rather, to unite to us as one body. Third, and I think shorter point, but we'll see about that be thankful for the peace of Christ. That little sentence there, and be thankful. What's interesting is those three things that I mentioned earlier, the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, the name of Christ, each of those sentences also has that same word, Eucharisto, in it. All of them are also connected to thanksgiving, gratitude, all three. So we'll be talking about this a lot in the next, well, when I get back, we'll be talking about this. (coughs) That word eucharisto, good grace, it's the word from which uh, some parts of the Christian heritage get the word eucharist. Um, We're to be grateful. And within that context, we're to be grateful for the peace of Christ, which can rule in our hearts and produce unity. And so we're to be thankful that that we as individual sinners can have peace with God, precisely because it rests upon Christ's work and Christ's record and not our own. And so those moments in which we're feeling weighed down by by objective real guilt because we have sinned, we recognize that our relationship with God is not based on how well we perform, but on how perfectly Christ has performed. Not only is his death sufficient, but his obedience is sufficient. We're also to be thankful for the, the many kindnesses that God has given us because of the work of Christ. The many ways in which He shows His ongoing love and commitment to us and, and His discipline of us as His children, His provision as our Father, His protection of us as, as our Father in heaven. We're to be grateful for that. There's another passage that comes to my mind when I think about these ideas of peace And thanksgiving. And that is Philippians chapter 4. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition, make your requests known to God with thanksgiving, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Something's at work there. Something very important. When we're struggling, When we're struggling with fear, when we're struggling with worry, and there's some of you right now in this room I know who are struggling with those very things. What Paul says to do is pray. But when you pray, you pray specifically with thanksgiving. And we'll get to kind of why. Well, I'll do it now. We pray with thanksgiving precisely because we're anticipating God's work for us in the future. Precisely because of his work for us in the past upon the cross. In other words, we're, we're able to be thankful because we know that he is for us, not against us. Because he's, he's given his son for us. And so we, we recognize we're not alone in this. He's with us in this. His heart is for us in all of this. And so while we may not understand all the dynamics of what's going on and and what could or could not happen, he does. And we don't need to be afraid. Now, that's very hard for us to not be afraid. And that's part of why Paul says, Pray. Part of it is, is praying your way through those struggles. But we have this promise that the peace of God will guard our hearts and our mind in Christ Jesus. In other words, Christ's work helps us to guard against fear and anxiety so we do not succumb to them. We recognize them when they when they appear upon our radar, when we feel it in our hearts and our minds, but what we do is is we ask God to help us with that. And he's able to guard us as much as we recognize that he is for us because of Christ. Because that really, that is what most of our fear and anxiety is about. That we're not big enough to deal with whatever it is that's in front of us. And we're afraid that there is no one who cares enough about us and is strong enough to actually help us. And the gospel says, there is one, and his name is Jesus. Trust him. This is why we pray with thanksgiving. Will not he who has given his only son not give us everything that we need for health and godliness? Of course he will. I'll close with one last story many of you might be familiar with the old art film, Babette's Feast. For those of you who don't like subtitles, you probably never saw it because it had subtitles and you turned it off. But it's an interesting film. It's a little long, but it's about a Christian sect in, uh, I think it's Denmark. It's been a while since I've seen the movie. Um, and what happened is, is that there was an, an older man uh, who was leading this church, essentially, and they became a little overly centered upon him. So when he died, his two um, single daughters were essentially sort of running this group. And what had happened is that sin had begun to sort of create division and problems, and the relationships became increasingly strained. Enter Babette, a refugee. Who shows up on their doors, and they're not really sure about who she is or what her story is, but she needs something to do, so they ask her to cook the meals for the widows. And when she cooks the meals for the widows, you know, they're telling her what to cook and how to cook it. And it's this rather disgusting looking cod stew, which I wouldn't want to eat, but uh, <laughs> nonetheless. And Babette grows to love these people even as she sees how they're growing separate. Well, Babette is from Paris. She was a refugee because of the revolution. And so <clears throat> she enters the national lottery of France and wins. And instead of running off into the future with lots of money in her hands, Babette decides to shower these people with grace by preparing a feast for them because what they don't know about Babette is that she is, was one of the premier chefs in all of Paris. She knew how to cook. And so she spends all of her money building, in a sense, the perfect meal with the perfect wine list. And she invites all of these people and some extended people there as well. And there's one guy who, fi- you know, there's one of the dishes. He was a, a military man who had been in France. And he tastes one, and he's like, this is... And he names the dish, and he names the restaurant, and he realizes it's her. But all of the people over the course of this meal, this gracious meal, this gift that they did not deserve, all of those sins began to be forgiven and relationships restored. And the people left not sort of, you know, like the Red Sox used to have, you know, 25 guys, 25 cabs. They left arm in arm. In other words, it's been healed. It's a parable of the peace of Christ, which heals the relationships and restores the unity of the body. So autoimmune diseases pit parts of the body against each other until eventually the body is destroyed. There generally is no cure, only symptom management. But in the body of Christ... Though we see many forces at work to pit the body against itself, though we see sin and pride and false teaching, selfish ambition, fear, there's a cure. This time there's a cure, and that cure is the peace that has been purchased by Christ. And when it rules in our hearts, we live in a unity to express our gratitude to God for all that He has given us in Christ. Let's pray. Uh, we thank you for the peace of Christ. That it is not a superficial pretending to be at peace, but something that has dealt with the very source of discord and rebellion something that cures instead of just being a band-aid because he restored peace we're able to lay down our demands our fears our wounds our bitterness Father in the days to come Help us to be increasingly ruled by the peace of Christ. That as we talk about this join and receive thing, that we would do so fully aware and in light of the peace of Christ. Not just for our salvation, but also for our unity. That we... Might be able to declare that reality in our actions and not just our words. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.